For the third year and counting, Richard Skipper has been celebrating the artists you love. Richard Skipper is all about celebrating life, art, and his guest body of work. Please join us while he showcases these diverse and talented individuals. Here's Richard Skipper. Happy Thursday, everyone, and welcome to a very special edition of Richard Skipper Celebrates. Who or what are you celebrating today? Those of you who are here for the first time, welcome. My show is all about celebrating, celebrating life, celebrating art, celebrating each other. And I am very excited about today's show uh, because there is so much to celebrate. First of all, September 25th, 1970. Do you know where you were? I know exactly where I was. I was nine years old and I was at my grandmother's, my grandmother's skipper uh, in South Carolina. Uh, they had just gotten, uh, well, a few months earlier, their first color television set. Uh, yes, I'm that old. Um, I just turned 62 a few months, uh, well, in February. Uh, and uh, so we were there uh, to celebrate uh, what was going to be an exciting new show. And this was a show called The, the Partridge, Partridge Family. Family. You know, Mom, if you weren't always busy cleaning the house, you wouldn't be so tired. Each week, the Partridge Family answers the musical question, can the family that lives together sing together? Tune in, sing along. family. And we all sat around and we watched this. Now, for those of you who are probably slightly younger than me, this was a time where there were three networks, ABC, CBS, and NBC. And these three networks vied to get the largest demographic they could get. So these three networks would bring artists from my generation my parents' generation, my grandparents' generation, together onto these shows. And families would sit around the TV set together watching these shows. So I would see uh, these stars from my parents' generation and my grandparents' generation on these shows. I mean, I one of my favorite episodes, which we're going to talk about today, had Ray Bolger and Rosemary DeCamp on the show. And if you don't know who Rosemary DeCamp is, uh, well, you'll know by the end of today's show. Uh, but each week, as we sat back to watch the show, you would see this little opening, and it all began. Sit back. Today, we're going to celebrate one of my favorite shows, and I'm sure one of yours as well. Here it is. Make you happy. We'll make you happy. 
And there you are, Johnny Ray Miller. How are you? Hey, how are you? Uh, I'm doing great. I have to ask you, which came first, the partridge or the egg? You know, that's the big question. Which <laughs> came first, the music or the show? That's uh, what I meant. You, you I, went right there. That's what yeah. I was asked. <laughs> wow. Uh, well, uh, I think, of course, the show, I think, you know, I would feel that way. Uh, but um, they went into the studio and did the pilot in September of 69, or I'm sorry, December of 69. Then they signed on to the show um, early, quickly in uh, January. And things started to happen in March. You know, the Wes Farrell came on as the music producer and he spotted a talent in David Cassidy right away. And, um, you know, soon they were recording and taping. And uh, so when the first song was released, uh, it was actually released in August before the show premiered. And the album was released the same week as the show. But the song was not getting a whole lot of momentum before the show. When the show started, the song took off. So there's your argument, you know, um, which had more influence over the other, the show on the music or the music on the TV show? Well, do you recall which you experienced first? You know, it's funny. I was um, I was only five years old uh, whenever the show started. And I didn't know about it or or catch on to it till towards the end of its run. So I came in about season three, I think, is when I saw the first episode that I saw, which was um, the one about Lori's diary, which my, my good old friend Bruce Kimmel was in that episode. He was a very popular guest star on The Partridge Family. Was on oh, yeah, and I know Bruce very well. You had him on, didn't you? Oh, yes, he's been on the show. Yeah, That's yeah. Hi, everyone. Go and look at it. <laughs> So, um, but were you also uh, a Brady Bunch fan? I mean, uh, what a great lead-in for the show because I know that our family uh, watched the Brady Bunch religiously. So, and it was the perfect lead-in for this show. Um, yeah. Were you already watching the Brady Bunch when you became familiar with this show or not? I think it was right around the same time. You know, I was at this age where we would come home from school and we'd see these shows on the reruns. Um, it was still airing at night, but they were running them like crazy, you know, on three different channels. And I'd turn it, flip it around and watch it. And I watched both shows, but I always kind of, you know, tongue in cheek joke that it's my job to pick on the Brady's, right? That, that's that's part of my job in all of this. So, you know, those damn Brady's move over. <laughs> no, I liked them both, though. Uh, you know, they were different, I thought, as much as they're always compared even as a kid, I kind of felt they were very different. Like the Brady Bunch always felt very um, uh, like before my time, kind of um, very father knows best. Mm -hmm. And I always kind of felt like the Partridge family was more with the times of 1970. Um, I don't know. That was just kind of my that was my take on it. Well, I mean, you know, my take also was that the Partridge family was trying uh, to be uh, this rock and roll uh, family, uh, but it was also trying to keep its foot uh, on the wholesome side of things. Uh, let's face it, they weren't, you know, they, 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 the world was changing a lot, and especially music was changing at that time. So they uh, were in this world of, and you can run with this, uh, what was considered uh, bubblegum pop music. Uh, but as you explore in your book, um, the music was a lot more than bubblegum pop. 
Mm -hmm. Very much so. It was really good, legitimate pop music of the day that kind of falls under easy listening a bit more than it really does bubblegum. I think they marketed it as bubblegum because there was an audience there to be had and because they expected it to really be received that way. And because of the label that it got it, it always was kind of tagged with that. But I really, to this day, do not believe that that was bubblegum music. If you listen to it, if you take the Partridge Family image out of your head and you put a CD in there and mix it on shuffle with some other stuff. Well, now I'm even dating myself with CDs, right? But, you know, you mix it in and you don't hear bubblegum. It's very much pop music of its day. You know, bubblegum always, to me, has a lot more of a like a yummy, 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 you know, that kind of thing. And David Cassidy had a very deep and complex being to his voice. I always felt his voice was just so underrated. There's just so much more to his voice uh, than he was ever given credit for. And then, you know, you had you had Shirley Jones in the mix there, too, and even singing solo on the show several times. And, you know, she was a class act, uh, an Oscar winner, a singer unto herself um, who had albums and done Broadway. So bubblegum? I don't think so. No, I agree with you. And it's very interesting that you said what you just said, because in preparation for this show, um, I asked my device, which I will not mention by name for fear that it will go off. Uh, I was uh, listening to uh, uh, the, all of the music of the Partridge Trinity this morning and really great in, uh, music. Uh, I think that a lot of people uh, and everyone watching the show go back and listen to this music because I think it's worth taking the time to go back and listen to it again. Now, I want to talk a little bit about you. You grew up in Ohio. Um, I am a few years older than you. I grew up in a television household. Uh, was that your case as well or not so? Not really. Um, I mean, I was certainly part of like, we were the TV generation, I think. Mm -hmm. That was something that we did. And in your intro, I was just reminded as you were talking about how there were only three networks and, you know, that's all we had. And you'd flip around channels and kind of reminded me of that old phrase, less is more. Uh, yes. You'd go to school, right? And And you'd be talking about what you watched on television and everybody was watching basically the same stuff because you only had three choices. So I feel like in my household, um, my dad never watched TV. He was always working, always busy. And my mom was a stay-at-home house mom. Uh, and she liked TV, but I think she was more prime time, you know, and I was tuning in right after school. I was flipping the channels around and watching The Partridge Family. I remember watching The Partridge Family three times a night on three different channels in the rerun era. And, you know, one of the things, one of the conversations I had recently with one of the writers from the show, and I've had this conversation several times, is why, why is the Partridge family not so alive in syndication the way that the Brady Bunch lived on? You know, they were so similar, and yet the Brady Bunch seems to be the one that, you know, became this sort of syndicated hit, if you will. And the Partridge family you know, kind of slipped away and it comes up, comes and goes. And it's interesting, like the why behind that and um, who really, nobody really knows for sure why some have speculated that the music, maybe the music is con uh, considered dated. Others have speculated that it had to do with syndication and the packages. So Partridge family ran four years and the Brady bunch ran five. And there was like a deal back then that if you ran five years, you were, 
eligible for syndication, but what, but the Partridge family was still in syndication. So what was that? Was that, you know, like a money deal that the networks made? Well, with- I want to ask you about that because, you know, I uh, had the good fortune of having Dorothy Lyman on this show. Oh yeah. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. When Dorothy Lyman was doing Mama's Family, um, Joe Hamilton, who was the executive producer of the show, came in and they made a deal, which at the time they thought was a very good deal. And the deal would be that if they took an increase in salary at the time, they uh, would forego residuals in the future. And they had no idea that the show would still be running how many years later in syndication. And on weekends, uh, the show runs almost 24 seven on TV. And none of the actors get any residuals for the show this many years later. Do you know what kind of deals they were cutting at the time as far as the residuals were concerned? No, I don't. I I really don't have any insight to any of that. I know that, um, you know, that they had conversations looking at their contracts later in years. Brian Forster had talked about that once with me, uh, how they really, you know, kind of examined their contracts later on. But uh, there didn't really seem to be a whole lot of answers to, you know, what those packages were. I couldn't tell you that. Now, I had asked earlier, and we didn't get it in time, uh, but it was a last minute uh, request um, for a picture of you at five years old. Yes, and I went looking and I could not find one. I have, the only one I can think of would be my first grade picture. And I was looking for my class pictures and I I don't know, they're in a box somewhere. (laughs) Well, the reason that I go back to the five-year-old self is because to me, the five-year-old self is the purest self. That's before life begins to tell you who you should be or who you shouldn't be. Yeah. And I'm just wondering, at five years old, did you have an idea of who you wanted to be later in life? And did you follow the path that you set out to become? Um, I did not know at five years old. Um, I hadn't discovered the Partridge family yet. So that came at about seven, eight years old. And at that point, I wanted to be David Cassidy. Well, uh, you know, that was so, yeah. I mean, I certainly, that show was you know, triggered my interest in entertainment. I wanted to sing. I wanted to act. Uh, You know, that was my, that became the first kind of influence on me or something like that, for sure. And, you know, when you finally did uh, become acquainted with the Partridge family, how did that shape your world early on? And we know how it shaped your life later on, which we'll talk about, but at the very beginnings, how did it shape your world? Um, It was, you know, as a young person, you know, you don't analyze yet why you like something, you just do. So I can only reflect back on how I felt then, which was that it was, um, it was uh, something I wanted to be and do. I wanted to I wanted to be part of life like they had it. I wanted to sing. I wanted to, you know, have the perfect, on that bus. <laughs> yeah, yeah, ride on the bus. I have, you know, the perfectly resolved day at the end of the day. And, you know, um, I think like later when you look back uh, on it, you you realize this is one of my favorite conversations I had with some of the people I interviewed. William Bickley, who was a producer and writer. 
uh, told me that he wrote for the Partridge family, that he had a very dysfunctional childhood. And the way he wrote was how he would like life to be, that how he dreamed it to be, how he hoped that it could be. And he really believed it. So as he wrote the stories, the ones he wrote and 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 the role that he played, it wasn't just about gaining an audience or, you know, wrapping it up in a tight little package. It was true from the heart. And it came out of the hopefulness that life possibly could be that way. That we had the power, maybe, to create life that way for ourselves. And I love that. I had a writer on here once who said that he actually uh, compartmentalizes his day in 30-minute segments, as if they each 30 minutes was a different sitcom. That's so interesting. And so it's interesting that you say that, that at the end of, you know, if, if something bad happens in that 30 minutes, at the end of the 30 minutes, you know, change the channel and move yeah. on to something else. And it's a great way of looking at life if you're able to do so. You uh, know, it's funny. Yeah. I can tell you, uh, I don't know about you, but when I was young, um, I didn't like the TV shows, the, the ones that were deemed comedies that were coming into vogue that would suddenly take a dramatic twist. So I didn't like All in the Family. I didn't like MASH. I didn't like those shows because they would throw me. I'd be sitting there thinking that I'd be watching one type of a show. And at a young age, for it to go dramatic, like I couldn't process that, I think. And I didn't like it. And, you know, even to this day, honestly, um, there's too much like attempt to be realistic on television. Mm -hmm. Don't we just love the escapism? I love the escapism of it all, of those old TV shows. You don't get a whole lot of that anymore. I mean, they use the word entertainment for a reason. Do you know that I have been watching, and it, they just are rerunning them again on MeTV, and I've been watching the uh, Beverly Hillbillies, and they're showing them in sequence. And the writing, there, there are a lot of uh, double entendres. There are a lot of uh, things that, as a young kid, I never picked up on. Yeah, I'm listening. I'm watching now and just laughing my took us off. Very many <laughs> things that uh, are there that you did. I mean, these writers were brilliant in yeah. terms of the way they structured these shows. And you're absolutely right. Uh, I don't need to be hit over the head uh, with every show that I see on TV. It's just pure escapism. Yeah. Um, but Johnny, were you always a writer? Uh, when did the writing start for you? <laughs> That's. Oh, man, that's an interesting story. Um, yeah, no, I went to college and studied theater. I have a degree in theater. Uh, I ran two theaters as, a, as an executive director of the theaters. Um, I have a long list of credits of stage performances. You know, I was in musicals and dramas. And, you know, that was kind of theater became my path for many, many, many years. And um, along the way, so when I was little, my mother, you know, I would always say, I want to be David Cassidy. You know, I want to be Keith Partridge. And she would always tell me, no, you need to be John Boy Walton. And I would be furious. I'd be like, I don't want to be John Boy Walton, you know? What kid wants to be John Boy Walton? But, the funny yeah. thing is that everybody was telling me all around me that I was John Boy Walton. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, she wanted me to write. And she always told me she wanted me to write. And I didn't believe her. I, I just always thought, oh, I can't, I can't do that. And I never took it seriously, not for a single second. 
And then through life, you know, there were just these little clues that, that I ignored all the way through life. And finally, I was just at a place in life where mine was falling apart, you know, and I'm sitting around kind of wondering, what am I going to do? And so when I get depressed or whenever I needed a happy place, I, I, uh, go to the coffee shop, open up my laptop and go surfing Partridge Family websites. And, you know, it was kind of like my mental escape. And I, you know, I'm kind of sitting there silently complaining, like, why don't they ever write? And why is there hardly anything on the Partridge Family? It's always the Brady Bunch. <laughs> you know, they never write, nobody ever writes anything substantial about the Partridge Family. And there's all this music. Nobody wrote about that ever. And then I just kind of got this idea. And I thought, hmm, could I? And I thought, nah, I could never do that. Well, I had worked in the theater and worked with David Cassidy at one point, not too long prior to this. And it um, it was an extremely well-received experience. It was great for me and great for him and just great for everybody. And, you know, we were planning on working together again. And um, I just thought, well, you know, maybe maybe if I had him behind me, you know, I potentially could do this. So the first person I reached out to was uh, the office of Shirley Jones. And I went back and forth a little bit with them. And then some time went by and I thought, you know, I didn't hear anything. And I thought, well, you know, this isn't going to happen. You know, I, I have no background in this. Why, why would it? And then suddenly one day I'm at the grocery store and my groceries are kind of going across the conveyor belt and my, I had a flip top phone and it rings and I'm just like, yeah, hello. And I hear this voice say, Hello, John. This is Shirley Jones. And you know, I I dropped my groceries like I left them and went outside of the grocery store trying to keep my cool, never went back in for my groceries. And that's how the whole thing got going. Um, she got behind me. And because she got behind me, you know, that opened all these doors for for people to speak with me. And I spent, you know, several years on this book. And uh, in fact, even to the point where it was kind of hard to let go when it was time to finally publish it, it was kind of hard at that point to just, you know, stop myself and say, okay, now you got to hit go. Uh, so that's, that's kind of how it all happened. And it's, um, it's just been like my own, I, never a day goes by, am I not grateful for what has happened? Never so a many, day. There are so many layers there that I want to unwrap right now. <laughs> I want to move back up first of all, and let's go to David Cassidy. Let's start with him. So when you worked with David Cassidy that first time, and did you express with him about this love of the show and uh, your desire growing up to be David Cassidy? And if so, how did he respond to that? Well, actually, no, I didn't, because I know that millions of people have done that. And how is that conversation going to be any different, I thought. And so there I was running a theater and my whole life had been theater and nobody ever talks to him about theater. I, I shouldn't say nobody, but that that was kind of what I wanted to talk with him about. So we talked a lot about theater and life in general. And it was just a really great, nice time that we got to spend together. It was just um, an amazing time. And, um, you know, he he's... Um, again, peel away the image. Uh, he, he was a normal guy, a great guy, just, you know, just like your best friend next door or whatever. He was like that. And how did the, how did it get to Shirley Jones that you were interested in this project? I, I contacted her office 
And so, you know, they grilled me back and forth a few times with some questions and, you know, probably checked me out, I'm sure. And then, you know, uh, how whatever the conversations ended up being went my way. But I don't know what those conversations were, but I'm sure glad they had them. <laughs> so at the very beginning, what were your first steps and what were the doors that she opened for you, if any, at the very beginning of this project? Well, um, we didn't, that was my first interview I did was with her and it was in person and it was long, several hours. And again, she is this incredibly lovely lady, incredibly uh, loving, real human being who I think would probably, you know, give, give someone a chance uh, that, that, you know, looked as though they could do something. And that's what she did for me. And um, she said to me, you know, I don't know why nobody has done this before now, and I'll help you in any way I can. The next thing I know, I'm on the phone with Brian Forster and Suzanne Crow and Danny Bonaducci. And so, you know, you're talking to these people and with each person you talk to an interview, they have their experience. And then when I would go to speak to someone else, you know, it snowballed and um, it just kept going and going. And I was very interested in the music because nothing had been written about the music, nothing. And all those years, 40 years, no one wrote a book about this music that focused on it. So I wrote about the TV show too, but um, it's in there. But uh, this was really heavily about the music, about who worked on the music, the stories behind the songs, the stories behind the albums, um, the way it was received or not received in pop culture. Uh, so yeah, and there was so much to be had. There was so much to find and unravel. And, and then I would stumble upon little side roads along the way. The bus is one of them. The bus had been misdocumented all those years. For 40 years, the bus had been misdocumented. That's not a 1957, despite all the printings that stated that. It's 1955. And um, I have the manufacturer's drawings to prove it. Wow. <laughs> so, Wow. Yeah. So, you know, things like that. It has just such a great story. And those kinds of things would just fall in, they, they would fall in front of me. And I just go down this sort of rabbit hole and see what I could unravel. I, another interesting thing for me was discovering that there were stories behind every single album cover. I found the woman who actually did the artwork. And there's a story. There's literally a story behind every single Partridge Family album jacket design. So that tells you that it wasn't just slapped together, that it wasn't just, you know, hardly thought about. It was really well taken, well thought out and taken very seriously. As you started out on this project, I know that uh, working on this, uh, I I've been working on a book celebrating all of the women who have played Dolly in Hello, Dolly. And I've been working on this book for well over 10 years. Wow. And uh it, it, it's a lot of painstaking work. I know what it takes. <laughs> yeah. uh, and it's amazing. You'll finish an interview with someone and they say, well, you need to speak with so-and-so. And that's how yeah. these doors open. Yeah. But as you're working on this project, was there a particular Holy Grail interview for you? And that when you got that interview, beyond Shirley Jones, of course, um, tell us a little bit about that Holy Grail interview and how that unfolded and became to be? That is a really, really great question on your part. Um, nobody's asked me that before. And so holy grail in terms of uncovering a story, not in terms of who I got to speak to, not the who, but the what, right? Um, 
Uh, I don't think I can just pick one. I, I will have to give you. Well, we can talk about several. Yeah. One of them is um, a guy who has been researching the bus for like 50 years. And I stumbled upon him. Stumbled. And he was the one who really enlightened me to a lot of knowledge about the bus. And it went sent me down the rabbit hole to which together we uncovered information about the bus that had been confused or, you know, never revealed before. I would say, yeah, he was one of them. Uh, Colin, he was one of them. Um, he was a historian. He had worked in Hollywood and, and he was also a historian and a, a person who, um, you know, brought old restaurants back to life. Um, I can't think of the word right now, restoration person. Mm -hmm. And he had once actually, he had restored uh, John Boy Walton's car from the Waltons. And he was very, very interested in wanting to restore the Partridge family bus. And when he went down the path, it was only to uncover just how incredibly rare this bus is. Not just, I mean, the bus itself is, you know, a, an iconic thing, but the make and model of the bus is so rare it's just kind of unbelievable that this very rare model made its way they didn't plan it that way they bought the bus for like five six hundred dollars from a school system that was getting rid of it uh but the bus that they had was that unique he estimated that maybe you know they only made 2500 of them at the time in 1955 so imagine how rare it is now to even try to recreate a bus to find, he had told me that he was looking for 10 years for a bus to restore for the right make and model. And every day on eBay and Craigslist and all these places that you would look and never found one up to that point uh, and continues to look. And I think, I haven't talked to him in a long time, but I think he's made some progress on that. But um, that would be one. Um, Mary English, who designed the the jacket covers for the albums, those were all stories that no one ever heard before and now, do you have a favorite particular album cover um wow uh you know the stories influence me I, I mean i probably would have said before i wrote the book that it would be the partridge family up to date because it's here i have it right i have the cd version because it'll fit on the camera well but you know it's like uh you know it's very attractive it's probably the most famous cover it's probably the one i would bet that the fan favorite would be this one mm -hmm. um but for example the story behind this is that the designer wanted to do a cover that celebrated their birthdays in order left to right of their birthdays but because of contractual things that pictures had to be a certain size and you know the way that it had to be laid out according to bell records had its own um it dictated certain things. And so she came up with this. And I just think that's so interesting because I thought this cover was inspired by the bus. It's got that Mondrian design, right? So I thought it was probably a, you know, a throw to, um, to celebrate the bus. No, it was reshaped uh, from the idea that she wanted to do an album about birthdays from left to right and other birthdays in order. So the, I don't know. I don't know if I have a favorite cover because it, you know, those stories mess me up. Um, they were also probably crossword puzzle. I think that's one of the most fun stories in all of them. What has surprised you the most uh, in terms of the journey to get this book written? Um, that anyone ever talked to me. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, it, it, it and was. And now you can't get them to stop talking to you. <laughs> oh, thank God. 
Thank God. I mean, yeah. Uh, God, what surprised me the most? Um, man, I, I, I would have to say the way, the way that it keeps going, the way that it just keeps on going. I never dreamed I'd write a book. Then I wrote this book about my favorite show in the world and thought, if only I sell ever one copy of this book, I don't care. Um, and it's just kind of taken off. I'm working on. Well, talk my- about selling this book. I mean, well, I want to talk about the uh, the path. I mean, you did something unusual uh, with this book and uh, kudos. You got this book out there through Kickstarter. Um, why did you go that route? And what were the pluses and minuses, if there were any minuses, with going the route of doing a Kickstarter campaign for any of those listeners out there who were thinking of doing the same thing? Another great question on your part. Um, it, uh, it was not my plan to do that. Again, now you're talking to the guy. I love to say this. I'm from the middle of nowhere, Ohio. You know, I, that's, that's my thing. Uh, so, so I was moving along in the research of the book. And as I moved along, I met a lot of people. And um, one of them was a guy by the name of Ken Sharp, who I became good friends with. He knew David Cassidy uh, as well, and he's a recording artist as well. He's an author. Um, his focus is music. And he, I, I think he may have found me first. He heard about what I was doing. So he, again, the most generous human being in the world, for some reason, this, this wave of whatever you want to call it was with me wave of luck, wave called God, uh, wave called uh, whatever you want to call it, the universe was with me. And it things would just fall into my lap. And here's this guy, and he had two interviews, because he was going to write a Partridge Family book in the mid-90s, that one with Wes Farrell, long dead, and one with Tony Romeo, also long dead. Both of them were about the music. And he just put them away in his cabinet, um, dropped the project, because the Joey Green book was coming out. So, and then never got back to it. He gave me those interviews. Of course, I credited him all the way through the book and said, this has never been seen. You know, get this out there. Just get it out there. So I had that with, you know, in, 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 along the way. So he became a friend of mine. And we'd talk, you know, casually. And I, and I would say, how am I ever going to get a publisher? He said, don't worry, you'll get a publisher. I'll help you get a publisher. He said, just keep on going. So the time came and he says to me, you know, I said, okay, Ken, you know, how do I get a publisher? You know, and by now I had had a dream of what I wanted it to be, which is what it is. That was my dream of what I wanted it to be. I wanted a hardback. I wanted it to be thick. I wanted it to cover every minute detail of the music. Uh, I didn't want it to be a commercial in such a way that we've seen a million times over. I didn't want tabloid stuff in there. Um, so, so I had this sort of dream and Ken had heard, Ken knew about Kickstarter. I didn't. Now, the funny thing is, once again, the universe, um, I have a long background in fundraising. I ran two theaters, two nonprofit theaters. So I'm very skilled at fundraising. It's not something I ever wanted to do again. <laughs> and so when he posed this idea and told me about it, I thought, oh, yeah, you know, yeah, I could do that, but I don't want to do that. I let's let's hunt for a publisher. And Ken says, "Okay, 
Uh, all right, we'll get you a publisher. Now, understand it's a book on a TV show, so you're probably not going to get a hardback. You're probably going to get a paperback. And understand that, you know, you're probably not going to get color photos. And I'm sitting over there, and, you know, understand it'll probably be about 300 pages or so because, you know, that's what books on TV shows tend to be. And I'm sitting there kind of going, hmm, uh, I don't know if I like exactly what I want. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, wait a minute. Um, hmm, the fundraising, maybe I could do this one more time. So, so the pro is the pros far outweigh the cons if you do it right. Um, I ran it not just to publish the book, but to put a business behind it. And um, so, it was it was hard. It was the hardest thing I ever did in terms of fundraising. You had to raise the money in 30 days. And um, there was not a second to waste. There was no time to waste at all. Uh, every single day, you had to be out there really aggressively. And we planned for nine months ahead uh, to do it. So um, I would say, man, nine out of 10 were pros. I'm, I would do it the same way again. I would, I would absolutely do that the same way again. But, um, you know, cons... Um, I mean, I have to think to even come up with them. Um, distribution, maybe. So uh, I could I could get things where I wanted them to be available. So I could put it on Amazon, but I did not. I chose not to put it on Amazon. Um, the reason I didn't put it on Amazon was that once I ran the Kickstarter campaign, um, everybody knew who I was. So because they were donating to the thing, right? Mm -hmm. So now we have social media. Um, I ran this campaign. In today's world, we have social media. So I was selling the books through the website uh, nonstop. And it just kept going and going. And then, and I mean, it kept, it's still going. You know, I, I went into a second printing. And that's without Amazon, you know, or or I don't want to say anything else. I have boutique bookstores that it's in in LA. And um, and actually, you there was a period where you could, order it through uh, Barnes and Noble. Um, but, uh, and I did a lot of Barnes and Noble book signings and I really wanted to be in there with Barnes and Noble. Um, but I mean, I would love to be available everywhere, but it wasn't, um, it wasn't something that was in the path of the universe. You know what I mean? Uh, it, it was going out through my website and I just kept running with it. And it basically, I mean, I sold out of the first edition and uh, the first printing uh, and then went into a second printing, which is, you know, towards the end now. So um, the new book, which we'll talk about, uh, I know, with uh, upcoming with Ryan Cassidy. Oh, we're definitely going to get there. Don't worry. Yeah. About that. Uh, so that was <laughs> You're coming back on the show. Well, that one, you know, is under a publisher and no regrets there either. Because... And I hope that after today that you're excited about coming back on the show. Oh my gosh, I'm very excited. Yeah, but yeah, no, I mean, for this one, for this first book, Out of the Gate, I love the way it happened. Like the force was with me. Let's say that the force was with me. And then the second book came and Ryan and I talked about it and wanted to look for a publisher and we did and we're, we're thrilled we've done it that way. So when the next book comes, I've got more coming, you know, I'll cross that bridge when we get there and we'll see what happens. So you said something earlier that I want to get back to. Uh, I mean, you said you could continue to be working on this uh, project if, if that allowed for that. I'm paraphrasing a little bit. 
When did you know that this book was ready for the consumer? Uh, was it your decision? Uh, was it someone else's decision? And out of the uh, original players, whether that be the writers, the uh, actors, who was the first person to see it? Was it Shirley? Was it someone else? Who was the first person to actually see the finished project? Uh, the first person to see it probably would have been either Shirley Jones or David Cassidy. Uh, because I mailed them the book first. And David Cassidy got his on Christmas. I did this in, on purpose. He got his on Christmas Eve of 2016. And um, I think Shirley, it was either the same day or the same time. Like, I think right before Christmas. And um, I was nervous. And, and I, I think I sent the cast. I think all, all those went out first. Um, I think that's how it went. I can't remember for sure. But uh, I do remember being really nervous. Like, will I hear anything? Will I get a response? And, you know, and the next thing I know, there's Danny Bonaducci on Twitter, like doing this. Oh, I know. I, I, yeah, I, I mean, you know, that was like one of the first things. Uh, then uh, I want to say it was into January. And I, I, I mean, did you get an immediate uh, response or did someone call and say, have you seen this? Uh, I'm not talking about the Danny Bonaducci photograph, uh, which if no, anybody, if anyone uh, Googles when we're singing, it pops right up. So yeah. you'll see it. It was, there was immediate response all over the place. It was immediate everywhere. And um, uh, I was just, I don't have words to tell you what that's like. It was just so incredible I, I just couldn't believe it was happening i still pinch I, I still can't believe you know um it just morphed and it just kept going the david cassidy was so important to me that one and shirley jones and um i mean I, I you know i'm just getting to know you so but i know what this show means to you i know what this book means to you i know your love of this show i can only imagine that the time and effort uh with every single detail that you wanted to make sure that every single detail was absolutely on the money, on the mark, correct. One of the things that you said earlier that I absolutely love, that you absolutely wanted no tabloid things in the book. So mm -hmm. kudos to you for that, because anyone who knows me knows that I, gossipy information stuff, I am totally against that stuff. There's a, a platform for that, and that's not what this is about. But so I'm sure that you were so nervous to make sure that every single detail was correct. Oh, um, yeah. Yes. So I can only imagine what that was like for you. Oh. So, um, getting these comments or the, the response that you're starting to get from especially the cast members, uh, as, the, as it starts to trickle in, uh, what is that doing for you as a lifelong fan of the Partridge family? I don't have words to tell you. It's unbelievable. It's incredible. It's humbling. It's fantastic. It's, um, I spend hours in introspection thinking about it only to shake my head and kind of, you know, uh, unbelievable. I mean, like I said, the next thing I knew was that there's Danny Bonaducci on Twitter. David Cassidy is inviting me to sell my book at his concerts. 
uh, Shirley Jones is welcoming me along with her to sit right next to her at conventions. So, and all this happened right away. And, and it just goes like pedal to the metal, go, go, go. And there is not one single second of a day that I'm not grateful for at all. And, and thankful. Thankful. Just amazing. That's wonderful. Just amazing. Yeah. And, you know, life really can begin at 50. <laughs> That's what I always tell people. I mean, really, like, you really can do anything. I kind of feel that way now. I never really felt that way before. But, um, you know, you get people behind you. You get that that role that you're in, The the like I'm saying, that role with the universe, whatever word you want to use, what, however you want to describe that. Um, it It's just... Um, Pay attention to that, I guess. You know, if you find yourself fighting in life, always beating the wall, take a look at what it's trying to tell you. There's, there's, I, I all of a sudden could see that, you know, um, well, this has been looking at me for a very long time and I wasn't looking at it. Writing, that is. Uh, so my own mother, you know, I would, there was no way I was listening. And finally, I just, you know, came to a point in my life where I was kind of beat down enough to a point where I, you just kind of don't feel like you have anything to lose. And why not try this? What the heck? It's my happy place anyway. So let's write a book. Oh, and you talked about how did I know when it, when it was ready to go to print? That was a hard moment. I got to know my editor very, very well. I hired a great editor. That was part of the Kickstarter package. Mm -hmm. uh, I spent the money to get a really great editor. And I couldn't let go, and it just kept going and going. And you know, she now, just just throwing it out there. Was this editor also a fan, or did this editor become a fan, or where was she? Was, she would you would I would describe her as a casual fan, not like me, but somebody who liked the show in its day. Uh, she was very professional, very professional, intelligent editor um, who had done a lot of stuff, and she was so gentle with me when the time came. You know, we had just done all this editing over and over. I, I crossed every T and dotted every I. And then in the end, when I was trying to fit into my budget, I had to think about cutting 75 pages. And I was wrestling with that like crazy. And, you know, I just didn't want to do it. And um, finally, you know, she says to me, if I were you, I would keep them because it's, this is what you want. This is yours. And you know, I kept saying over and over, I want the book that I want because I know it's, I'm a fan, so I know what the fans want. Why would I cut stuff out that I wanted all along? You know, that was- Well, you know, I, that brings me to my next question. Did the book, um, at the conclusion, and when I say the conclusion, because this life, it has a life of its own, but when you- close the ch uh, book, so to speak, to go to the consumer and the audience. Uh, was the book what you had envisioned when you set out or had it become something completely different from what you had originally envisioned? No, it was absolutely what I envisioned. Um, I mean, maybe there were a little like, again, like the rabbit holes I went down, like the story of the bus grew and the story of the album jackets when I found her, it opened up, but um, pretty much it was exactly how I envisioned it in the end, e right down to the design of the dust jacket. Yeah. So uh, 
you, I mean, it seems to me as if you had this incredible tunnel vision in terms of getting this done, going after it. Uh, so I admire you so much for this. It's out there. The fans are responding. How are the fans responding to this book when you, when they are getting this? And this has to be, as from a fan's perspective, and that's the best way for a book to get out there. There are so many books that have been written. Well, I'll use Barbara Streisand for, as an example. There have been 60 books written about her. And I had Jay Landers on the show. And Jay Landers has worked so closely with her. And he said, yet all these books that have been written about her music, no one has ever reached out to either him or her when it comes to her music. No kidding. And yet, now she's got her own book coming out, November 7th, everyone. Uh, and if Barbara, if you're watching, I'd love to have you come on the show. So, uh, but her book is coming out and the anticipation is uh, you can feel it. Uh, but the fans are anticipating this. I am sure the fans had been anticipating this book for so long because it had not been written before. Mm -hmm. What was the initial response when the fans are finally getting this book out there? Exactly what you can imagine. I mean, so like I said, I was and am a fan. So I didn't have to think about what they wanted because they wanted what I wanted. Mm -hmm. I knew that. And, 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 you know, you get on the blogs and, you know, you read what everybody's talking about. Cause that was my, my escape. I'd get on these things and, you know, check out into Partridge land and listen and interact. Uh, back then, you, you know, it was a different kind of interaction than it is now uh, reading. It was always reading, but I knew what they wanted. It was the same thing I wanted. So um, it it was really like, everybody has been so great. Uh, the emails that I got and, you know, and, and the response is always um, from people have who were. Have you received a response from somebody that really surprised you? <laughs> Endlessly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, well, you know, all of the, all of the stars from the show um, I hoped, but I never, I guess I, I never really thought I would, but it's amazing. Um, uh, the songwriters, um, I was really into the songwriters, you know, and what they did. And, you know, I sent them copies of the book too, and got great response. John Baylor, oh my God, uh, the response from him, he was the vocal arranger and he was one of the uh, background vocalists on the Partridge family. He sang on everything. In fact, Streisand, he worked with her too. I mean, yes. he worked with Michael Jackson and he sang on all their albums and he just loved it. Uh, and has since become a good friend of mine. Um, so, yeah, uh, just... Now, speaking yeah. of great singers, uh, Johnny, you're also a singer, am I correct? <laughs> well, uh, no, not really. Um, but you do sing. Uh, well, I, I wanted to sing a little ditty today. Here. Tomorrow uh, is a very special birthday. Yes. <laughs> it is. Tomorrow is Shirley Jones' 89th birthday. Happy birthday, Shirley. I, uh, you know, I, I was I was searching. I've got a great photograph. I was lucky enough to have dinner with Shirley Jones uh, years ago uh, when she was appearing at Feinstein's uh, at the Regency here in New York uh, with dear Ron Abel, who made that happen. 
Um, and I couldn't find the photograph, but I'm going to make sure that I have that photograph by the time you come back, uh, because you're going to come back, back with another Cassidy, which we're going to talk about on the other side of this great song that you're about to sing for us. So yeah. sing the song, and then we're going to talk about your comeback. <clears throat> Go first. Okay. Yeah. You called me a singer. You really set me up for this. <laughs> this is for you, Shirley. Happy birthday to you. We think we love you. You sing like you're age ageless, and you look like it too. <laughs> Happy birthday, Shirley Jones. Happy birthday to you. And I've got right here, I am so excited because this is your next book. It's out there. James Cagney was my babysitter with Ryan Cassidy. And Shirley Jones wrote the introduction to this book. This book is so incredible. Um, you know, you call it a children's book, but it's so much more. These these illustrations, I've got my notes and everything falling out of here. Uh, the illustrations are so incredible. Uh, Andrea uh, uh, Carvajal, am I pronouncing that right? I think. Okay. <laughs> Uh, it, it's just an incredible book. Um, we're going to go into great detail uh, when you do come back. Um, but tell us how this book came about. Did it come about because of Ryan? Uh, did it come about because of Shirley? How did it happen? It came about because of Ryan. And I'll save a lot of this for when, um, you know, you speak with Ryan and I. Uh, but, yeah, uh, that's how it all happened. Um, he. Uh, is someone I met along the way and he had an idea and he approached me about it and boom, uh, next thing I know we're doing it. So that's the short version and I'll, I'll save it for your, for your next. Uh... April 13th, everybody, three o'clock right here. Uh, Johnny will be back as well. Um, I can't believe how fast this hour flew. Um, yes. I, I want to thank you. I hope you had as much fun as I did. Oh, a blast. Uh, I, uh, and you know this, I have not had a chance to read the book because it, it is gone, it's out of print and I can't find it anywhere. Yeah. Um, so, uh, but I've been dying to get this book. Well, um, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna get a copy to you. Um, and it's not out of print, actually. It is still available, there are still copies. Um, only available through the website, whenwersinging.com. Okay. Um, but it's, you know, it's probably gonna be closing in on the end of the run soon. Uh, who knows, I don't know. You just never know. But um, yeah, no, it's still out there, and uh, but exclusively through the website. But and don't go anywhere for a moment, because I want to say a few things to everyone who's watching. First of all, thank you all for being here. I know I'm seeing a lot of names of people here, here for the first time, and I know it's because of you, Johnny, that they're here for the first time. Uh, you can do both Johnny and me a great favor. Even though you've left comments here, please go to YouTube after the show and leave a comment on YouTube. What they will do is that will raise the ranking of this video and it will show up in all the search engines and it will increase the ranking of this video. It's very important that you do that. Um, if you subscribe to this channel and there are over 700 videos to choose from, uh, if you subscribe to this channel, you'll get a notification uh, when Johnny comes back uh, with Ryan Cassidy. Uh, I'm very excited about that upcoming interview and check out the other interviews. Uh, please share this with your friends. 
uh, that would mean a lot to me as well. Um, and I'm going to give you the final word today, Johnny. Uh, it could be about anything that we spoke about today uh, that you want to build upon, anything that we didn't talk about that you wish we had, or just any final message that you want to leave everyone with today. Uh, don't worry about how to end the show. As soon as you uh, say the final goodbyes, uh, I will end the. Uh, I will start the final credits. Um, but I want to give my final uh, word uh, today, and I want to begin. Uh, by paraphrasing a little bit uh, from one of my favorite Shirley Jones films, and that's The Music Man. Uh, in The Music Man, uh, there's a moment where Marion, the librarian, uh, says to Professor Harold Hill that she almost did not meet him by the footbridge and uh, because she was afraid to meet him there. And he says to her, you know, you can spend a lifetime collecting tomorrows, only to find out that you have no yesterdays. And I think it's very important that we all uh, spend our time taking advantage of our todays so that we have lots of yesterdays in our pockets. Um, I end every show by telling everyone to go out and do something nice for somebody else without expecting anything in return. Pick up the phone and call a friend someone that you have not spoken to in a long time, and letting that friend know how they've made a difference in your life. Life is fragile, especially these days. Let these people know that they've made a difference in your life. Uh, do it before it's too late. Uh, not an email, not a text message, not a private inbox message, but a phone call. I have a dear friend, he says, we're all in the same storm, but we're in different size boats. Some are in canoes, some are in rafts, some are pushing tugboats upstream. It doesn't really matter what size boat you're on, as long as you have a skipper by your side. So with that note, I'm going to leave the screen. And Johnny, it's all yours. And I can't wait to see you back here on the 13th. Thank you for the great work that you're doing and that you're going to continue to do. I'll see you in a few weeks. Thanks. Thank you so much. Thank you. Wow, what to say to close with. Um, There's so many things I could say. Happy birthday again, dear Shirley Jones. Uh, we'll be uh, celebrating you and your beautiful voice tomorrow. Uh, may you sing forever. Uh, and uh, to the cast of the Partridge family, you know, thank you for the great entertainment and the writers. Thank you for all of that. Uh, we, we miss you, Suzanne Crow and Dave Madden. And boy, we miss you and your incredible voice, David Cassidy. Thanks everybody for having me. Take care, bye-bye. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC. Member SIPC.